So can I ask you, um, how can commemoration help um, overcome historic divisions between social groups? Or is it more likely uh, to lead to creation of fundamental identities? I think when commemoration starts relatively shortly after a conflict, there are two possibilities. One is that it has to start within the different sections, the different partisan sections of the community, where each recognizes its own past. Or it can actually start with both sides coming together to recall how everybody has suffered. Now, if it's possible to move immediately to the second, then that's a very good thing. Um, because then you can reframe things so that it isn't a question of victory and defeat, but rather how everyone has suffered and how it is important to move forward for the next generation. If, if you can't do that, and if people start off, for example, as is in the situation in, in this country with regard to the First World War and the Second World War, and they start off talking about victory and defeat of one side against another, then sometimes you have to have a prolonged period of time where you continue with that and it becomes quite ritualized until for some reason it's possible to take the next step of saying, well, actually, our people suffered and their people suffered and we all suffered and we don't want to do it again. And so commemoration then becomes not just a recollection of the past, but a reframing of things towards a better future. Uh, and one of the problems, of course, at the moment in Europe is we were coming to a point with the European project where in principle it was becoming possible for Germans to come to French war commemorations, for example, um, and, and in this country too. But things have begun to pull back in, in, in Europe, people looking more to their own communities as against the other. And so we're not at a very good point at the moment for moving commemorations forward in this positive way. May I ask you, you said that um, it would be very important to come rather or to facilitate it for people to come to this um, superordinate arch of suffering um, and putting that in front more than um, focusing on victory and defeat. How do you think you could um, or how could you facilitate this process of or to of, of people to focus on this kind of um, suffering? It's it's very fashionable to talk about how these things shouldn't be done by elites and it should come from the ground up and so on. But I don't think that happens. I think in almost all of these processes, from my observation, you have to have some leaders who take courage and find ways of changing the language and changing the understanding and taking people forward. My own experience of peace processes, for example, is that while it is very important to create a general mood music that is positive and you need support in the community, if you don't have some leaders that take a courageous position and say, we're determined to take this forward, then it doesn't happen. And so, for example, whenever in our situation we were trying to move forward and we had made some steps forward, the Queen, as head of state in Britain in the United Kingdom came to a memorial in Ireland which had commemorated the rebellion against the United Kingdom and was prepared to lay a wreath there 
and also to say things could have been different and I wish they had been. <laughs> so that nobody was saying we were the good guys, you were the bad guys and so on, but simply recognising that actually everybody had suffered, this wasn't a good thing, and coming to that place of remembrance and commemoration. And she was able to do that as the head of state. Well, that had powerful resonances so that you then got people who were the leaders of Sinn Féin and the IRA saying, yes, I'm prepared to go and shake hands with this person. And that took courage on everybody's side to, to do that. So it's, of course, the community is very important, but, but if you don't have leadership of the community that takes people forward, then you don't tend to get movement in a positive direction. Thank you. Um, how can poetry and life writing bring in excluded groups? I think there are a number of ways in which this can happen and indeed in which poetry can affect what happens in public policy. One is a direct way in that the poets write things which grasp the public imagination and express things that that give people a different perspective, a different angle, that beg questions and make people think. But I think it's probably more often the case that poets say things or speak about things in such a way that people in positions of leadership find a new language, a new way of thinking, a new approach which they then take from the poets into public policy. I mean, I think, I don't know about this. Uh, it's entirely a speculation on my part. But Seamus Heaney and John Hume came from the same part of Northern Ireland, the same kind of religious and political background. And if I look at the way that Seamus Heaney addressed things, and I know that there was a friendship between John Hume and Seamus Heaney, it, I can see a connection with the way John Hume th thought about things as the leader of, of constitutional nationalism. Now, I don't know if he was directly influenced by Seamus Heaney's poetry or if both he and Seamus Heaney were influenced similarly by something in the background of both of them. I think that will be a very interesting PhD for someone to do sometime uh, to explore that relationship that was there. But I do think that there's some kind of connection there which is a kind of meta effect of poetry. It's not a direct, we changed everybody's view, but rather we changed the mood music, we affected the way people think, and particularly opened the options and the thinking of people in leadership in, in, in public policy. Um, may I ask you, um, which role do you think does this acknowledgement of different perspectives have in, in, in commemoration? It's certainly very important when you are trying to move commemoration beyond I am recollecting my own community's experience, celebrating that, mourning it, and I'm, I'm now going to try to take into account the experiences of others and have a commemoration that brings people together rather than pushing them apart. It's really important in that context to understand the position of the other. And it's it's challenging and it's difficult, not only because people have different experiences 
uh, and experiences of conflict and being on the opposite sides of the conflict. That's one thing. But also because different communities often have different cultural ways of being in the world. And so the way that would work for you to make this celebration would not work for me and my community, even if it was sympathetic to my community, because that's not how we celebrate or that's not how we do things. I was talking with somebody earlier today about funerals and we were discussing the, the difference between a traditional Irish funeral in the country with a wake, with all sorts of uh, attitudes and behaviours and rituals and so on, totally different from, for example, the kind of funeral that you would have in an English city. It, uh, and if you took people from the English city to the Irish countryside, uh, they would feel very uncomfortable because uh, it's a different way of doing it. And I noticed in Northern Ireland, for example, in our talks process, that I had to be aware that people from the Protestant unionist community as a whole, and it's a bit of a generalisation, as a whole, had a particular way of thinking which was different from the way of thinking and approaching problems. They, for example, would like an agenda which would be agreed and we would go one, two, three, four, five. People from the Catholic nationalist community would also like an agenda, but they would say, well, now, we can't really go from three to four without understanding some of the implications of five and six. And the Protestant unions would say, hey, we, we agreed this agenda. What, what, why are you messing it around? Are you not serious about this? Say, no, no, we're very serious, but, you know, there's a there's a different way of looking at this. Oh, no, no, we, <laughs> we have this way of looking at things. So even if people are agreed to work together on something like a commemoration and you find language that is suitable for one but addresses the other it it doesn't necessarily work you have to find ritualistic forms that 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 people from different perspectives can engage in and that's challenging but it's fun it's creative but it's challenging how, how do you think um this happens with um commemoration or how can how how which implication has this got on more recent conflict or the most recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan um, by reconciling different communities? I think it's much too early to talk about reconciling different communities in Iraq and Afghanistan. The wars are not even over yet. Mm. And you've got to be very careful about timing. I remember uh, just after ceasefires and so on in Northern Ireland, I was a member of Belfast City Council and I uh, was in those days, believe it or not, young and enthusiastic and my beard was black in those days and I immediately within a few weeks proposed uh, that we have some kind of memorial for all of the people who had died. <laughs> no, 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 no. People did not want to have a memorial for everybody who did. You mean you want a memorial for members of the IRA? Says the unionist. No, 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 no. You mean you want a memorial for British soldiers and, and policemen? No, 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 no. So you've got to be careful about timing. And I think if you try to move too soon, you actually make it impossible to do for even a longer period of time. But is there a danger that it might be too late on the other hand? Of course, of course, that is a danger. Uh, and, and this is more of an art than a science, working out timing and how you do it and when you do it and who does it. Because in negotiations, for example, there may be a perfectly good proposition and the time may be right for it but if the wrong person proposes it the answer is going to be no so it's a it's a it's a, a, a difficult and delicate kind of thing and i don't think you can prescribe it and say well this is the formula and i suppose it also depends on 
who commemoration is for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, this is where if you try, and I, which is what I was hoping to do at that stage, if you try to have a commemoration that acknowledges the suffering of, of everyone, there will be times when that is too soon for people and they will say, no, we're not going to do that. And then sometimes they will say, okay, you don't have anything useful to say to help us. We will go off and make our own commemorations and they then become institutionalized and you've not moved forward, you've actually moved backwards. So it's it's a difficult it's a difficult challenge, and 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 we certainly haven't got it right in Northern Ireland in the sense of having resolved these problems at all. This whole question of the legacy of the past remains a big problem for us. It's one of the things that is 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 leading to difficulties in current negotiations. It's not just a thing of the past, but I do think in respect of somewhere like Afghanistan and 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 Iraq. I mean, there's still active hostilities going on. So even getting these people together would be dangerous because they will be coming together to kill each other, not to commemorate the past. The past is not yet the past. Mm. It is still the, the here and now in terms of the conflict. And therefore, I think that's that's very different. I mean, it's different if you've got commemorations in Britain for British soldiers who died in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's a different thing. Uh, and, and those will simply be rolled in along with ongoing commemorations of people who died in the war. But that's a very different thing from doing it in Afghanistan for people in Afghanistan or, or Iraq. And that will emerge or not emerge for them in time. And when does the t- past um, become the past? Well, that's, a, that's quite a challenging thing. It doesn't automatically become the past. And... I think one of the important pieces of work when you're working on a peace process and, and, and constructing new institutions is finding ways in which you can speak about it in the past as the past. This happened, not this is happening. And uh, there were various ways in which we took steps to try to do that in, in Northern Ireland. I mean, for example, in the parliament building there, uh, identifying important people from both sides who had died and had been politicians and arranging for memorials of them beside each other in the parliament building. And these memorials were unveiled by the families of both sides in the presence of each other. So things like that to try to say, look, The past was when we were fighting and against each other. Now we are remembering the past together. Um, So I think there are things it can do. Having said that, these processes don't move. It's not like riding a bicycle where these things just move on. It's more like playing an accordion where you bring people together and they push each other apart, bring them together and they push each other apart, and you're continually working like this over a period of time. And at the moment, we're in a period where people are like this rather than like this, and, and you could become disillusioned and give up but that that this is how these processes work it's a bit like dealing with somebody with alcoholism you know you'll get them off the drink and then they'll be back on and then you get them off the drink and then they'll be back on and you just accept it's a relapsing problem and you have to work with that so uh yes it's it's not an easy thing to make the past be the past and and the, the past never completely goes away and it's always there and in certain circumstances can be raised up again.
for good and ill. I mean, sometimes you can make people connect with the past in a constructive way. Maybe that's one of the things that, that poetry doesn't focus on as much as might be helpful. It tends, like, like a lot of folk music, to focus on the negative things from the past, the terrible things that happened to me or my community or whatever, and, but you know, and we survived, but it was terrible and so on and so forth, rather than looking to the future possibilities. Poetry tends to focus on what has happened and has been horrible rather than what can happen and it realistically can happen in the future. Do you think um, this kind of poetry would be successful? Or how could this kind of poetry be successful? I think it's very dangerous for a non-poet to tell poets how they can be successful. I don't know the answer to that. Mm. But I think whatever way we try to engage with these things, with whatever medium, the two things we have to be aware of are that, first of all, um, we're dealing with um, complexity of reality not the way we wish human nature was. And, and a lot of what people do is they wish that human beings were different, that they were logical and rational and that they only acted in the best interests of everybody and all these kinds of things. And it's not the way we're constructed. So if you're going to make a useful contribution to the future, you've got to recognize the reality of human nature with its minuses as well as its pluses. And the second thing is, I think when we're speaking about and dealing with these things, we, we probably have to speak symbolically um, rather than concretely, because we're talking about things that we don't know how and when they will emerge. Therefore, if, if we speak concretely about them, we're probably talking nonsense, really, you know, and potentially setting up antagonisms to things. So I am proposing this constitution for the future. No, no, I don't agree with item four. I don't agree with item six. No, no, no. In our situation at home. Well, what are you trying to do? We are trying to create uh, uh, an outcome that everyone can live with. Oh, but what are the details? The details are that we are trying to create something that everyone can live with. And actually, that I mean, it was that kind of language which was both inspirational and opened the door to possibilities for us. We had to create a new language which spoke in a different way from before in order to open the door to engagement and negotiation and a constructive outcome. And I think sometimes for people from a liberal disposition like myself, it's very tempting to go back into kind of concrete things and, and so on. And, 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 and most of the time, it's not actually very helpful. This is why poetry, music, drama have possibilities for inspiration because they connect with our feelings and for uh, motivation um, to something new and different because it's, they speak symbolically. They're not too concrete and that's often very helpful. And in which sense um, does it help or how, which role does teaching this kind of new language to speak other people this kind of new language like I mean those who suffer suffer from uh, their losses um, which role does it play um, to help people to understand and to use this kind of new language? I, I think that it has to it has to grow and develop in a community it's not that somebody can come in from outside and say look here's some new language. Uh, 
it, it, it has to develop from the community itself, knowing its history, knowing what words mean in this community. That's where it has to emerge. And the second thing is, I think it frequently has to emerge from those who have suffered. People think, oh, well, the powerful are the people who need to make the changes. Why should the powerful make the changes? They're powerful because they're in power. Why should they give that away? So so it's actually the, the people who are motivated to have change are not the powerful, but the people who have had a difficult time. And that's a very big block I find in many conflicts. People say, oh, well, no, we shouldn't have to do anything. We're the victims. You see, <laughs> who else is going to do it? But somebody else should. Maybe they should. But if you're going to wait for them to do it, you wait a very, very long time. It's not going to happen. So a lot of the movement, for example, in our situation came from Republicans because they said, well, look, we're not winning. We're not getting any. We need to change the way we do these things. And that's quite a radical shift for people in the way that they think about things. So it's, it's, it's mostly from that place that the changes of language took place. And most of the changes of language that took place for us took place in the nationalist and Republican community first.